things I established a long time ago in my life as kind of a routine is getting up early in the morning and spending time with God. Um, I used to call it a quiet time. Um, and it was a time of reading scripture and, and praying. But um, over the years, it's kind of involved to even much more than that. I always start with scripture. I, um, and then I start to meditate on what I've read. Or I meditate on certain uh, memory verses that I've memorized. Or I, um, I have a list of God's promises that I um, have committed to memory that I go over and over and over. And sometimes it involves just pure silence. I'll just sit there and just listen for it. Other times I'll get uh, like a hymn or a song that comes to me and I'll just start thinking about that hymn and that, that song. This has taken me to a place that is different from just that quiet time that I used to have, to a place that's so much deeper. And I feel the presence of God. I feel His peace enveloping me. I feel a calm, I feel a confidence, kind of a quiet confidence. Not that I can go take on the world, but just the, just the fact that I'm not, I don't need to be afraid of what's out there and what um, life is going to throw at me. Now, I get out in the real world and sometimes the forces kind (laughs) of bend me out of shape a little bit, but when I start the day that other way, it is like a refresh, it it, it is like Psalm 23 where he'll leave me beside uh, quiet waters. He restores, he refreshes my soul. That's what I feel like when I go to that place. I think that's the way God wants us to be, is vulnerable in front of Him. He knows that I've already, I'm not perfect and I've messed a lot of things up and I've got baggage and I've got problems and I'm not as good at this area as I might be at this and I may have this gift, I may struggle with this, but He's got that. I want to be able to say, God, hey, you know me. You know where I want to be. You know what my heart is. I'm, this is an area I'm struggling with. You know, help. I think if people really do go up with God and commune with Him, like I've learned to, it just, it changes you, man. It changes you from, it, it, you will really see dramatic effects from the change. And I'm sure it looks different to, it's different in everybody's life, but This is the way it has worked for me. Thanks to uh, Brad for sharing some thoughts with us and trying to help us to make sense of what it means to go up and to be with the Lord. Grateful that you're here this morning. Uh, Thanks again, especially if you're joining us for the very first time. At this point, we're going to take up an offering just so we can continue the ministries and the services of the church. Uh, So as I begin the sermon, let's go ahead and do that now, guys. Thank you. Uh, I want to give a special thanks and shout out to Heather Johnson and the entire dance ministry crew for a butterfly ball last night, a father-daughter dance, uh, grandpa, grandkid, uncle, niece dance, every, every kind of dance there was. We had a great time, danced the night away. Uh, I'm just hoping that I didn't scar or traumatize my girls too badly with the moves that I busted out last night. It was hot, it was crazy. Anyway, it was a bunch of suburban guys dancing. It was ugly. It was bad. But the girls were gracious and kind and good to us, and they laughed and danced along. Or they just played with the balloons. Either way, it was a good night. Hey, for the last month or so at West Falls, we've been in a sermon series entitled Up. If you couldn't tell, there, there it is. 
Here's what it's all about. Here's what we've been discussing together as a church. In Exodus 19, we read that God literally comes down to the top of a mountain, a mountain called Mount Sinai. But not only does he come down, but in that same chapter, in that same story, he actually invites someone up. Look at Exodus 19, verse 20 with me. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And Moses went up. And this invitation up. This invitation to be with God, this invitation to experience God, to encounter God, this invitation to to know God, to see God, to hear from God, to feel God, that invitation. It's not simply an invitation that was just given to Moses in Exodus 19. It's an invitation given to every Christian. It's not just reserved for a few special folks. It's, It's now an invitation given to all of us. In fact, that's the point. Jesus didn't die on the cross so you could show up to church or so you could pay up with your money, so you could listen up to a sermon, so you could sign up for a ministry. He died so you could go up. Go up and be with God. Jesus died so that you could have the connection that Adam and Eve had with God at one point in time, this intimate, harmonious connection where they walked with him, where they knew him, where they talked with him in the cool of the garden. That's what now is possible for each and every one of us because of Christ. We don't have to stay at the base of the mountain. You don't just have to read blogs or watch videos or listen to a sermon about who God is and what he's doing and how majestic and and powerful he is. You can experience it all for yourself. That's what it means to go up. It's to know God personally in a profound way, a way that changes things like Brad talked about in the video. So a few weeks ago, we started talking about why don't we go up? What are some of the, the barriers that are stopping many of us from connecting with God? If you didn't listen to that, I'd encourage you to go back. We're talking about baggage. We're talking about boredom. We're talking about all kinds of different things there. Last week, we started a conversation about uh, what you do when you go up. Like, it sounds good, but it's kind of scary. I mean, alone with God, intentional time set aside, meeting with him up on the mountaintop. What do you do up there? And that's a conversation I want to continue having this morning. Lots to talk about. Let's just jump right into it. Have you ever been in a situation where things turned out to be much worse than you originally thought? or imagine them to be? Anyone ever have an experience like that? Maybe, maybe it was that nagging pain in your shoulder, the one you thought would just kind of go away or was just a sore muscle. Yeah, it turns out it's a torn rotator cuff. Great. Or how about uh, that squeak coming from your car? You're hoping a little bit of grease or the tightening of a bolt will fix it. Yeah, uh, it's a $1,200 repair, and we don't have the part, so it's going to take two weeks. Darn it. Or how about that one piece of rotted wood that's up on your roof line, right? You finally get up on the ladder. You finally get up there to take it apart and repaint it and put something else up. And you discover the entire roof is rotting out and you need a whole new roof. Or about that one little comment that your sister-in-law or mother-in-law made around the holidays. They don't feel appreciated. You thought it was just one little comment. Turns out they're not going to talk to you for the next six months. Anyone ever have an experience where something so small, so seemingly insignificant, turned out to be so much bigger than you ever dreamt it to be? I know I can relate to that. Well, the truth is that uh, what is true in all those different situations is also true when it comes to our own imperfections. The Bible uses a word called sin to describe our imperfections. And although we don't like to talk about sin a whole lot, and although we admit to it even less, sin is present in our lives, and it's a lot worse than you might think. Now you see it as a sore muscle or one piece of wood or just a tiny little squeak from the car. 
Sin is so much bigger than that. It goes so much deeper than that. Now let's make sure we're all on the same page here as we continue. The word sin at its most basic level just means breaking God's laws, violating God's commands. It means doing anything that goes against or is in um, opposition to the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the glory of God. The word can literally be translated to fall short, to miss the mark. It's a term that we use in archery or darts, right? In those settings, the goal, the hope is to hit the bullseye, hit the center, And when you miss, you are sinning. When you miss the center, you are sinning. And what happens with archery or with darts also happens in life when it comes to God's laws. See, God has asked us, he expects us to live in in harmony and holiness, to live in obedience and selfless love. That's the goal. That's the bullseye. But more often than not, we miss the mark, don't we? We not only miss the mark, but we end up like hitting the wall on the side. Like, oops, I love darts, college pastor for years, love to play darts, I have a dartboard in my office, and I swear, I don't put anyone's picture in the middle when I'm mad at them, okay, I don't do that. You don't believe me. Okay, that's awkward. But, but in darts, you'll, you'll notice I have my dartboard, and, and there's, some, there's some hits on the dartboard, but then there's a backer board, and there's also some holes in the backer board, because I've missed the mark a few times, and there's also some holes on the wall, behind the backer board and around the backer board because I've missed the mark that badly. And isn't that what we all do when it comes to God's perfect standards? We don't just barely miss the mark. I mean, we're hitting the wall. We're missing it completely. Now, that might not sound like a big deal. Well, you missed the mark. Just try again. Well, when it comes to sin, though, missing the mark is a big deal. Here's why. Because sinning and missing the mark and falling short of God's standards, God's hopes, God's wishes for your life, it always kills you. It results in death. Sin kills in a very real way. Now, we have a saying. It's kind of a positive saying, right? Like, man, you killed it. Like, in a good way? That's not true for sin. All right? Sin killed it, but in a bad way. You see, sin has this power and ability to destroy things, to divide things, to tear things apart Sin is really the best at it, to be honest with you. And that that death, that destruction can look and and take on so many different forms, can't it? It could be the death of a relationship. Sin can break that apart. It could be the death or destruction of a dream. It could be the death of a destruction of a family. It could be the death of someone's life, right? Sin kills. That's what it does. And chances are that when you first became a, a Christian, That the sin in your life, the enormity of this truth, that the fact that you missed the mark, that you broke God's heart, that you broke God's laws, the fact is probably you were really deeply convicted by that. There was a point in time where sin burdened you. You were like, are you serious? I've missed the mark that badly? I'm living in that much disharmony with God? I'm that far away from his, his hopes and wishes for my life? I can remember that moment. It was late one night in, in my car. I was crying my eyes out was embarrassing because my girlfriend was in the seat next to me, but someone had just shared the gospel with me and the enormity of my sin came crashing down. My materialism, my apathy, my anger, my sexual sin, my pride, all of those things, my death, the death I'd experienced already to that point, but the death I knew I was gonna continue to experience, all of it came crashing down, hit me like a ton of bricks. Anybody else know that feeling? Know that moment? Many of us do, right? For many of us, that that moment, it brought us to tears, didn't it? Or it brought us to our knees, or it brought us down to the front of the church when the pastor said, anybody want to give their life today? 
We know that feeling where sin was overwhelming and deeply convicting. But here's the truth, church. That painful conviction, that that painful realization, it's what leads you to Jesus. It's, It's what opens your heart and your eyes to the need for a savior. The magnitude of your mistakes is supposed to draw you closer to your maker. The deep conviction of your sinfulness is designed to lead you closer to Christ's holiness. The bad news is what helps you to accept and embrace the good news, isn't it? Okay, but here's the thing. As we mature as as Christians, we tend to think that sin is no longer a big deal. We are no longer convicted by it. We're no longer overwhelmed by it. We're no longer brought to our knees or brought to tears over it. It's as if sin was kind of an issue back there, but it's no longer an issue right here. We go from a place where we recognize our brokenness to kind of believing that we're just, we're all better now. But I want to try to show you this morning that, that if you move past sin, if you move past feeling convicted about your sin, you're actually allowing sin to do what it does best and divide and separate and kill you. When you don't focus on sin, sin has a really big stronghold in your life. Sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. Let me ask you a question, see if I can't drill this home. As you think about your spiritual life in this moment right now, would you say that you feel and have a greater sense and need for Jesus right now than you did when you first became a Christian? Do you think and feel like you need him more right now than you've ever needed him before in your whole life? Or has that sense of need and dependence, has it kind of grown stale and stagnant over time? Is grace, is the gospel something that you just kind of accepted at one point in time? Or is it something you say hallelujah for all the time? It's important how you answer the question. I want you to stop and really think about it. Because I don't know about you. I don't need savior or a savior. I don't need Jesus to just save me from all the stuff I did back there. That is true. I need Jesus to save me from all the stuff that's still going on in here and in here. Because there's a lot of it, church. Let me see if I can put this in a different way. How many of you have ever replaced the carpet in your home? Anybody having an experience like that? Well, for me, it was a very eye-opening and disgusting experience. Anybody else? Like, what? I mean, I don't know about you, but Becca and I, we keep a pretty clean home, a pretty clean carpet. We vacuum on a regular basis. We spot clean stains. We, we haven't rented one of those machines before from Home Depot. We paid professionals to come and clean our carpet. Well, after a while, though, it was time to replace them. And the belief that I had a clean carpet, yeah, that went right out the window in that moment. The carpet we worked so hard to clean was filthy underneath. We pulled the carpet out. There were stains and spills and discolorations I'd never seen before. It looked like a biology Petri dish. Like, what is growing right there? And the dirt, the dust... And you would have thought we literally laid our carpet on top of a garden bed. I had to get a shop back to get that stuff. A regular vacuum wouldn't even do it. Now, hopefully, you know I'm exaggerating a little bit. And 99.9% of that was from the previous owners. I'm sure of it. <laughs> and I'm sorry if you're totally grossed out. Like, we're never going to the Fitzpatrick house. Don't touch the carpet, kids. <laughs> but I bring up all that stuff because I think that our lives and our spiritual lives, they look a lot like old carpet. See, on the surface, everything might look pretty good. I mean, we've all got imperfections. Nobody's perfect. We've all got a few blemishes here and there. But, but I'm a Christian now, so I'm clean. And with a little pickup now and again, a little vacuum every once in a while, an occasional steam cleaning, a little two-day retreat up in the mountains, I'm really good to go. I'm as good as new. Really? Is that true? 
Is sin less a part of your equation now than it was before you became a Christian? Do you sin less now that you gave your life to Jesus? I mean, honestly, let's, let's talk about this. What's really going on under the surface in your life? What's happening deep within? How far does sin go? And is sin possibly present or affecting you in ways you weren't even aware of? Because my fear is if you pulled the carpet back on my heart, you wouldn't like what you see. And if you pull the carpet back on your heart, you wouldn't like what you see either. And that's not the most encouraging word you've ever heard at church. And I'm sorry for that. Like, pastor told me I was a piece of old junky carpet that needed to be thrown away. Can I go to kids' church for now on? <laughs> but to draw close to God, to be with him, to be up there in his presence, to be changed by him, you and I have to come to terms with a very unsettling spiritual truth. And here it is. You are a lot more sinful than you think you are. You are a lot more sinful than you think you are. Now, sometimes coming to terms with the truth can be really painful, right? Like hearing something that, that hardcore, that kind of in your face, it can kind of hurt your spirit a little bit. Just ask anyone who's been rejected on American Idol tryouts. It's not a pretty picture, right? Watch this. This is a sad but true moment, and it had to happen. Oh, now you're going through St. Louis, town and Missouri, and Oklahoma City looks mighty pretty. You see Amarillo, Gallup, New Mexico, Flagstaff, Arizona, don't forget Winona. murder <laughs> and I'm not being rude wow it was absolutely awful wow. it's okay oh right that poor gal but sometimes the truth hurts right and like Simon hey I don't mean to be rude right now but you're a lot more sinful than you think you are and when I say that to people when I say that to Christians it's almost like they have that same look that that woman had what are you serious how dare you say that about me? I'm sorry. Sometimes the truth hurts. And here's the thing, guys. Only when you admit to that truth can you actually and fully be liberated from it. It's only when you accept it. It's only when you embrace it. It's only when you say, yes, of course, that suddenly God is going to start to do some work in your life. A friend of mine came to this conclusion years ago. He had lived a very sinful life before he met Jesus, right? Whatever, whatever that means. And he comes into my office years later, and, he, and he's bawling his eyes out. And he says, Thomas, man, I've totally, I've totally messed up. Now, I'm assuming, given his past, that the cops are about to bust into my office and take him down. I'm assuming that five women are about to show up and be like, he's the father of all of our children. And he's, he's crying, and he says to me, I kid you not. And I think, I think I just gossiped about one Christian to another Christian. He is so torn up. He says, I think I just bad-mouthed one Christian to another Christian. And I was thinking like, that's it. That's it? All right, no big deal, my friend. You're good to go. 
But it was a big deal for him because it was sin nonetheless. It doesn't matter what form it took on. It was still sin. And he came to this realization, and as did I in that moment. The holier you live and the holier you become, the less holy you will feel because you realize how unholy you are when compared to the only one who is holy. You with me? That was a lot of holy, so hang on, let's do it again. The holier you live and the holier you become, the less holy you will actually feel because you will realize how unholy you are in the presence of the only one who is holy. You will start to see, you will start to sense just how deep sin goes. Man, I knew I was a sinner in that way, but I didn't even know I sinned in this way. I didn't even know gossip and belittling other people and hurting other people to make myself feel better. I didn't even know that was a problem, but it is a problem. Like I was aware of all that, but there's so many other things I'm not even aware of. Sin goes so deep and it's such a huge problem. And it's something that we have to admit to and be aware of. And it's not just when you first become a Christian, not just at the moment of your conversion. That's something you've got to come to terms with every single day as a Christian. That's what helps you to grow as a Christian. I know it sounds counterintuitive or backwards, but it's not. Now, don't get me wrong. Colossians 2, the entire book of Romans, the entire New Testament for that matter, makes something very clear. The penalty for our sin has been paid. I mean, we proclaim that through song this morning in a powerful way. You missed the mark. You didn't live and do not live like God wants you to live. And the consequences for that means there's going to be hell to pay, literally. But guess what? Those consequences have been nailed to the cross. That truth that you are a sinner has been nailed to the cross. And like Jesus, it died there. And unlike Jesus, it stayed there. It stayed right there. Which means the consequences of your sin, all that death, all that destruction, all that devastation, uh, that's gone. Now the condemnation of your sin, like you are this person, that's now gone. The payment for your sin, the penalty for your sin, all of that dealt with by Christ in the past. So you no longer have to carry it or worry about it in the present. You no longer have to feel guilty about it in the future. You with me? The condemnation, the consequences, the penalty, the punishment, call it whatever you want, that was truly dealt with at the cross. It was only something Jesus could have done for us. Because of Jesus, sin can no longer condemn us, it can no longer enslave us, it can no longer remove us from God's presence or separate us from God's love. That's what it used to do all the time, but no longer, no longer can sin do those things. But here's the thing. doesn't mean sin is no longer part of the equation doesn't mean that sin is no longer something that Christians struggle with or fall prey to or victim to time and time and time again. When you become a Christian, you don't just stop sinning cold turkey. Satan doesn't say, oh, nuts. They're a Christian now. Can't tempt them anymore. He tempted Jesus Christ himself in the garden with sin. I think he's going to tempt you with it as well. And chances are, unlike Jesus, we're going to fall prey to it, aren't we? We're going to give in to it. So sin has been defeated, but it's still something that Satan uses to distract us and to discourage us. Let me say it this way. We have been set free from the power of sin so that we can now fight with power against sin. You with me? 
We have been freed from this domineering power that was sin. We've been freed from that so that now we can turn around and fight against sin with great power. Before, it lorded its power over us. Before, we were powerless against this. We couldn't do anything about it. We always missed the mark every single time, no matter what we did. We've been freed from that. That's no longer our identity. That's no longer our destiny. That's no longer who we are. So now we turn around and we say, sin, I'm going to fight against you. You've been fighting me my whole life. I'm going to turn around and fight you. You with me? that make any sense? But as I mentioned before, for some reason, like mature Christians, they don't talk about sin. They don't deal with sin. They don't admit to sin ever. It's crazy to me. Like we believe that we better not struggle with sin anymore. We better not bring it up anymore and act like it's a problem in our lives anymore because if we do, then something must be wrong. Like if we admit that sin is still in our life or in our heart, maybe something's wrong with our conversion. No, no, worse, something's wrong with Christ. Because he said I would be dead to sin, that I'd be freed from sin. But if you know what I looked at or thought about or was doing last night, then you would think anything but dead to sin. You would know that's not true for me. So what's the deal here? What's wrong? Well, what's wrong is how we handle sin. We handle sin like Adam and Eve handle sin. What do they do? They hide it, don't they? Oh, go, go stuff it in the bushes. Maybe he won't notice. Or instead of hiding it, we lie about it. Like, what fig leaf? I don't notice a fig leaf. You, Eve? Oh, you have some on. That's awkward. So we hide it or we lie about it. That's the problem. The problem's not with your conversion. The problem's not with Christ. The problem is how you're dealing with sin. You're hiding it or lying about it, and instead you need to talk about it. You need to own up to it. Let me say it again. You are a lot more sinful than you think you are. And that was true before you became a Christian, but it's also true after you are a Christian for a long time. It should be something actually you are more aware of the longer you become and live as a Christian. This doesn't negate your faith. It doesn't undermine the power of the cross. It actually helps us realize that Jesus, Jesus didn't come to simply wipe the crumbs off your shirt. Jesus didn't come to wipe the milk mustache off your face. Jesus didn't come to clean you up a little bit. Jesus came to save your sinful soul. And it was sinful all the way to the core. You're not even aware of how deep it went. That's why Jesus is such a big deal. Because he saved us from something that was so much bigger than we ever imagined. And we have to come to terms with that. And it's okay to say, like, I'm still in that place and I'm still struggling with all that stuff. And it's still a problem in my life. That's what the Apostle Paul said. The Apostle Paul, one of the strongest Christians to have ever lived, years after his conversion, says things like this. And he's not panicking or freaking out as he's saying them. Listen to this. 1 Timothy 1.15. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I'm the worst. I'm so messed up. Romans 7, 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death that is subject to death? All thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ our Lord. I mean, imagine if one of our elders got up in the, in the pulpit this morning and said, I am a wretched man. What would you say? What would you think? Ooh, something juicy about to come down. Right? Like something bad happened. I don't know why you got to say it in that voice. I know it's like that. No, he could stand up here as an elder, as a man who's been in the faith his entire life, and he probably should stand up here and say something like, I'm a wretched man. Of sinners, I am the worst of the worst. Why? Because the holier you live, the holier you become, the less holy you will feel. Because you will realize how unholy you are when compared to the only one who is. 
Actually, a mature Christian is one who realizes sin is big. Sin is huge. And sin is still a huge part of my equation. I mean, I hear, I hear Paul saying that stuff. The worst and wretched. I'm thinking, wait a second, Paul. I mean, you've been a Christian for years already. You're a key Christian leader. Shouldn't you have figured this out by now? Well, he did figure it out. He figured out he was sinful. He was sinful back then, and he's still sinful now. That's what he figured out, and it changed him. So if my friend's story didn't resonate with you, let me just, let me just throw a couple more at you. How many of you, when we were talking about, or when you were talking to another person this last week, how many of you spent most of your time in that conversation waiting for your turn to speak? Uh-huh, 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 uh, my turn. Right? How, how many of you did that? How many of you didn't really care what the other person was saying? You were so interested in what you were about to say because it was so witty and insightful. How many of you, upon recently being asked by your wife to do a few extra things around the house, nodded your head in agreement but secretly thought to yourself, are you serious right now? More chores? As if I don't do enough? And I work all day long. You don't. Why don't you do these things? How many of you have ever been agitated by your kids or grown incredibly impatient with them because on the one afternoon you wanted to finish watching the golf tournament, they had to play wild ponies in the living room? Wild ponies, run outside, run free, get out of here. How many of you, when questioned by a close friend about your motives or your decision-making process, immediately got defensive and immediately tried to justify your intentions and belittle theirs? You don't have a clue what I was thinking. You don't know the half of the situation. I have every right to do what I did. How many of you have shown partiality to somebody in the last couple of days? How many of you, I don't know, let's say have chosen to talk to or go visit or pastor the people who compliment your sermons and not the people who criticize them? How many of you have chosen to, to pay attention to the people who are friendly to you, not the people who drain you? Now, if you're sitting there thinking, wow, uh, I think all of those examples are actually stories about Pastor Thomas. And if so, he's got some problems. Well, newsflash, those are all stories about Pastor Thomas, and he does have problems. It's called a sin problem. And it was a problem before I met Jesus, and it's still a problem today. It's so deep in me. And it's a problem that you, and you face as well. So that's the bad news. But here's the good news. Our sinfulness is normally something that keeps us from going up, isn't it? It's actually something that should draw us up. If you don't think that you're all that sinful, if you don't think that you have a whole lot of it in your life, then you're not going to go running up to your Savior. If your sin isn't a big deal, then Jesus is not going to be a big deal. So that's on one end of it. Sin is trying to keep you from going up by making you think you don't have a whole lot of sin in your life anymore. Or on the other end of the spectrum, sin is going to try to stop you from going up by making you think you have way too much of it in your life. I can't possibly go up to be with him. Did you know what I thought about, what I, what I did, what I said? So you don't have enough of it to go up or you have way too much of it to go up. But you see what sin is doing? Sin is trying to divide you. It's what it does. It's trying to kill you, trying to separate you from God. So instead of allowing it to stop you from going up, allow your sin to draw you up, to push you up. That's what 1 John 1 says this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of all of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. 
We're lying. But if we simply confess our sins, if we simply speak them out loud, tell somebody about them, talk to them about the Lord, then he is faithful, he is just, he will forgive us and cleanse us and purify us of all that mess. So confession, as seen in this verse, confession is not something that only Catholics do. Confession is something every Christian should do. Because confession has this unique power, this unique ability to free you up from the sin that is trying to take you down. So in light of last week, right, we go up to be with the Lord. When we go up, we start with lifting him up. We start with adoration, exaltation. God, you are so good. You are so beautiful. You are so powerful. You're unlike any other God that's out there. You start with lifting him up. Well, after you lift him up, the next thing you do, you fess up. You fess up. You fess up to all the brokenness in your life that you're aware of and all the stuff that you're not even aware of. The big stuff over here that makes the headlines and the little stuff over here that destroys homes. You confess to all of it because when you fess up, you're actually freed up. That's the beautiful thing about confession. When you go in God's presence and admit to being broken and sinful and selfish, he takes those things from you and replaces them with holiness and goodness, and godliness. So when you fess up, you are literally freed up. When you confess that you struggle to obey God or put him first or love other people, you're actually more able to love God, to obey God, and to love others. But you've got to admit, I'm not very good at that. And then suddenly you'll be good at that. Think back to Isaiah 6 real fast. This is a passage we looked at last week. It's a passage about lifting God up, right? Praising him, adoring him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. He is so different, so much better than we ever imagined. Well, what does Isaiah, the guy who was invited up in that moment, what does Isaiah say after seeing the Lord? What does he say? Woe is me. Look at Isaiah 6, 5. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm messed up. I'm sinful, he says. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king. I've seen the Lord. So Isaiah is invited up. And immediately, the first thing he does, he fesses up. Man, I'm a screw up, he tells the Lord. My heart, my words, my thoughts, they're so sinful. I have fallen so short, Lord. I have missed your mark so completely. You wanted me over here. I hit the wall way over here. And not only am I messed up, but my whole family is messed up. I don't know why you include that. That's kind of funny. Like, I'm messed up, Lord, and the people I live with, they're messed up too. And right now people are like, "Mm." so don't look at somebody right now face-to-face, okay, that's sitting next to you. But he's saying that the context in which I live, the way that I live, the people that I live with, it's all messed up. But here's the thing. God knew Isaiah was messed up before he ever invited him up. In fact, that's why he invited him up. It's as if God was saying to Isaiah in that moment, I know you're sinful. I just want you to know it because then I can actually free you from it. And that's what happens. Look at the rest of the text, Isaiah 6. Then one of the high angels flew over to me with a live coal in his hands, which was taken with tongs from this altar. With it, he touched my mouth and he said, see, this has touched your lips now. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. It's gone, he says. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. So Isaiah fesses up, and then God frees him up. See, here's the best news you could ever hear. Your guilt, Isaiah, is taken away. Your sin, it's atoned for. The penalty's gone. That's what he did for Isaiah, he wants to do with us. He, He wants us to fess up so he can free us up 
And then I love how Isaiah's hand goes up. Right? He's so free that suddenly he's like, what am I going to do now in my new freedom? I'm no longer bogged down with all this. I'm no longer guilty or weighed down by my imperfections. What am I going to do with it? And the Lord's like, well, I need somebody to go to the earth and bring some hope, bring some, bring some healing. Anybody want to go? So he's like, me! In light of what you just did, I came in so broken, but I fessed it up. I gave it all over to you. I expected you to hurt me. I expected you to punish me, but you didn't. You forgave me. You loved me. You took my sin from me. Literally, I gave it over like a pack of garbage, big old pile of stinky garbage. I handed it over to you, and you said, thank you. I'll take that from you now. And instead, I want to give you a mission. In place, I want to give you something to go do. Isn't that amazing? So why don't we confess more, church? Why are we so scared by it? When we offer confession down here, we're like waiting for somebody to come down. It's like, oh, someone must have done something really bad. Like, no, they didn't. They didn't do anything bad. They they just recognized that they're a sinner. And the person who comes down and receives prayer, normally think they're the one that's furthest away from God. I would argue that person is closest to God because they're about to be freed up by God. You fess up. He frees you up, and you get to go. You get to go do things you never could have done on your own. All right, so I think applying this truth would drastically change our lives. I'm going to invite the band up real fast. We're going to have a few more songs as we close out this morning. Let me just close with these words, though. If you implemented this in your life, I think it would honestly change your life. How will you be a better husband? How will you be freed to be a better husband? You confess that you're not a very good husband. You honor to the fact that sin is still a big part of your equation. How are you going to be freed up to be a better friend or a better parent? How are you going to do that? How are you going to be freed to be that person? Confess that you're not that person. Confess that you still struggle with sin and that you're not a very good parent or friend. How are you going to be freed up to be more like Jesus? Well, you confess that you're not like Jesus. Confess that sin is still a big part of your equation and suddenly you get to be more like Jesus. So don't run. Don't hide. Don't act like it's not a problem. Don't act like it's a little squeaky wheel or just a sore muscle. It's okay to say it. it's a big deal. It's, it's a big problem. It's okay to fess up. Because when you fess up before the Lord, he will free you up. And you will have the space and the ability and the power to do so many things you never thought possible. So I'm going to have some Stephen ministers down front, along the side, in the back, wherever. And they're going to be available for prayer. This morning is an opportunity. Fess up right now. I want to create a culture here at West Bowles where confession isn't this like big black dark secret that we do every once in a while. It's just a part of the routine because we're so messed up. Let's just be honest. Sin is still so deep in our hearts. And the more we admit to it, the more we'll be freed from it. Amen? Let's pray that over. God, we ask that you will speak to us and move us in this moment now and that you will convict us that confession is a beautiful, beautiful thing. That we don't need to be scared of you. We don't need to run from you. We don't need to hide from you anymore. But instead, we can bring all this stuff to your attention. You already know it, God. And even then, you still invite us up. You invite us up so we can hand it over to you. You invite us up so we can give it to you, so you can cleanse it, purify us, forgive us of it, Lord. Help us now and every moment moving forward when we are up with you to confess up. Please, God, make it so. Free us, free us now from the things that are holding us back and trying to destroy us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.